You're listening to Dragon Ore, book three of the Dawning of Power trilogy, written and read by Brian Rathbone. For more information, maps, and additional downloads, visit brianrathbone.com. Thank you for listening. Chapter 3 Our eyes are most critical of those who are reflections of ourselves. Alinda Womrick, Mother of Three Distorted echoes of string instruments and cymbals filled the halls of Ravenhold. There was no tune or melody, as if those who played could not hear the notes. Banquet tables were laden with rotting food. Faceless men and women danced without rhythm, as if some unseen force drove them. Katrin stood at the center of it all in her wedding dress. But when she looked down, it was soiled and torn. Her grandmother beckoned from the head table, but Katrin could not break free from those who danced. Her every step was blocked, and it seemed she was getting farther away. Lissa, looking as Katrin imagined her, like herself but with eyes of ice and fire, stood at her grandmother's side, her slender hand extended to point at Katrin, a silent accusation. Hands grabbed Katrin's waist and propelled her around the floor, twirling her until she was dizzy. Her legs could no longer hold her, and she fell and fell and fell. When at last she struck cold stone, she looked up to see Carid Winsaker staring down at her, his lips curled into a sneer. He laughed, and the room spun. Every face she saw was twisted in contempt, mocking her. Lissa threw a piece of moldy bread at her, and her grandmother laughed. Shame and grief overwhelmed Katrin, and she begged for mercy, but they surrounded her accusing her of abandoning them. Her grandmother came to the fore and opened her mouth to speak, but no sound emerged. Instead, a crimson rose bloomed on her chest, and she dropped to the floor, an arrow protruding from her back. On the balcony stood Katrin's betrothed, engulfed in a nimbus of power. He reached out with fingers of flame and raked the soft flesh of her throat. Crying out in pain, she looked down to see blood soaking her already fouled dress. When she raised her head again, robed figures threw ropes of fire into the crowd, and those who danced burst into flame, but still they danced. Wicked laughter pounded in her ears, and as a haze of blood clouded her vision, they were gone. No! Katrin shouted, grappling with hands that restrained her. She lashed out, desperate with fear. Benjen frowned down at her. It was a bad dream. Wake up, little miss. You're safe. Slowly, reality supplanted the image of her dream, and she relaxed. I'm sorry. You've nothing to be ashamed of, he said. Fate has been unkind to you and you've not even had time to grieve. Allow yourself to do that, and then, perhaps, the dreams will not be as bad. Thank you. People 
milled about, and several cast Katrin questioning glances. Madra approached. Everyone in the camp showed deference to her, yet she had a kind word, a pat on the shoulder, or an embrace for each of them. The harsh persona dissolved in those moments, and Katrin saw the real Madra. Our dreams bring messages, she said when she reached Katrin, but they are rarely understood. Give them credence, but do not rely on them for counsel. Thank you, Madra. When you've eaten, please join me, Madra said as she walked back to her tent. Chase brought a half loaf of bread, some smoked fish, and a flask of water. What do we do from here? he asked. Katrin had known this time would come, but she was still not ready to answer. Haunted by her dreams, she tried to find reason, tried to find a course that would not lead to disaster. In a moment of clarity, she firmed her resolve and made a choice. We go to Omahold, she said, but she turned her head when Millie made an annoyed sound in her throat. On the way, we'll stop at Ravenhold but will only remain there for a short time. Millie looked smug, but seemed satisfied. And after Omahold? What then? Chase asked. I'll not remain long in Omahold, either. I'll fulfill my commitments, and then I'll find a way to get to the Firstland. Belegra poses a serious threat, and I cannot allow him to enslave anyone else. I would go in search of the other statues, but I've no idea how to find them. At least, with Belegra, I know where he has most likely gone, even if I don't know how to get there. Wherever we go, Chase said with a pointed look at Katrin, we are going to need a ship. Fasha was headed for New Moon Bay. Madra knows ways to contact her, as does Brother Vaughn. I guess we just need to find a map. Katrin simply nodded her acknowledgement. I think Belegra may have a map, Samda said, but I doubt you'll find another. I believe it was among his most closely guarded treasures. We'll find a way, Chase said with a firm nod. Let's go. Madra awaits. On their way to Madra's tent, Katrin saw fear in the eyes of many she passed. Making the mistake of looking one woman in the eye, Katrin felt a wave of terror pour out. Some may seek out the ability to inspire fear in others, but Katrin detested it. It made her feel like a monster. Madra, at least, showed no signs of fear when they approached. She sat next to the remains of a small fire and motioned for Katrin to sit. Chase and Benjen seemed unsure if they were welcome, but Madra smiled. Please, all of you, sit with me and let's discuss what lies ahead. Thank you, Madra. We set out to confront the Jean armies and reclaim what is rightfully ours, Madra said. You're welcome to join us, if you choose. What you've already done has aided us. We're indebted to you for that, but we'll not kneel to you. I don't want anyone to kneel to me, Katrin said. I seek no power or authority. I only want peace. And while I support your goals, I, too, have things I must achieve. 
I must return to Ravenhold and Omahold to fulfill my commitments. But if our paths remain the same for some time, I would welcome a place in your camp. Fair enough. Driven by a strong wind, the stealthy shark knifed through the waves, sending a sea spray high into the air. Feeling the cool mist on her cheeks was one of the things Fasha loved most about the sea, and most times it brought a smile to her face. But on this day, it brought only fear and sadness. Watching Chase as he had waded from the surf, departing her world and entering the world of the landbound, something inside her had changed. She could not define what had changed, but nothing in her life had been the same since. Not even the rush of dodging patrol ships brought her any real joy. It was as if all the things that had been important to her suddenly lost their meaning. Chase's desperate, almost primal need to save his cousin had affected Fasha more than she had originally realized. Though she knew she belonged at sea, she found herself wanting to meddle in the affairs of the landbound, something her mother often cautioned against, saying it was a certain path to trouble. Still, the thoughts lingered, and Fasha continued to question herself. When sails appeared on the horizon, she had no choice but to concentrate on survival. Her conscience would have to wait. Weeks of traveling with Madra's army proved to Katrin that she never wanted to become a soldier. Half of every morning was spent breaking camp, and half the evening was spent making camp. She had to admit that this specific army had problems that no other would. Children ran through the tents in packs, playing and roughhousing. Other, smaller children cried late into the night, every night, making sleep difficult to find. Tempers were short, and patience was in shorter supply than food. When Katrin could take no more, she joined Madra and Benjen by one of the many campfires. Soon we'll turn west toward Adderhold, Madra said. We'll go east to Ravenhold, Katrin said. Thank you for everything you've done for us, and may you find what you seek. May the gods be with us all, and may you make your peace, if not for the world, at least for yourself. Thank you, Madra. You are kind. I've a favor I must ask of you, Katrin said, and Madra raised an eyebrow. May I use one of your horses to ride ahead? There are some things I need that may be hard to come by with an army in the area. You ask a great deal. We've only three horses, and I cannot afford to lose any of them. I cannot grant this request. All of them need to be shod, and Hedron says his back hurts too much to do it now. Benjamin and I can shoe them for you, Katrin said. I ask nothing in return. It's a small thing we can do to repay the kindness you've shown Chase and the rest of us. If you have the skills, Madra said. I can get you the tools. I'm certain Hedron will appreciate it, as I do. 
Katrin and Benjen followed Madra to Hedrin's tent. He struggled to stand when they arrived. Ah, Madra, I'm of no use to you at all, now am I? Nonsense. You'll heal, and then you'll work twice as hard, she said, and they both smiled. Katrin and Benjen have offered to shoe the horses. Hedrin smiled and shook Benjen's hand. Well, come then. There's a shoeing kit in the saddlebags. Poor animals are sore in need. Bless you for your kindness. The shoes were indeed wearing thin, and some were pulling away from the hoof, the nails loose or missing. Katrin held each horse as Benjen did what he could. Some shoes were near to wearing all the way through, and he shook his head. Not sure how long this will last, but they're on better than they were. The filly's shoes are pretty far gone. Far better. Far better indeed, Hedron said. I'd give her new shoes if we had them, but everything is scarce these days. Which horse has the best shoes? Madra asked. The chestnut gelding, Benjen said. Only one of his shoes is wearing thin. Take him, Madra said. Meet us within four days. Do not make me regret this decision, she said. Then she turned her attention to other matters within the camp. Katrin sought out Millie. I need gold. Do you have any you would loan me against the gifts I received? The gold is yours, milady. I merely keep it safe. Spend it wisely, she said as she handed Katrin a small but fat purse. Despite his protests, Katrin persuaded Chase to stay. Leaving her staff in his care, she and Benjen saddled up the chestnut and mounted. We'll meet you in four days, Benjen said, and Katrin felt the stairs on her back as they rode away. The sensation was overwhelmed, though, by the freedom of being on horseback, even if only as a passenger. Synchronizing her movements with the horse, they became almost as one, and she breathed in deeply, enjoying the serenity of the moment. What are we after? Benjen asked. I need new clothes, and I'd like to get whatever food we can. Clothes? No matter how much power I may have, people look at me and see a peasant and a child. I need clothes that will create a much different impression. I suppose you're right, Benjen said. But this is a dangerous foray. We've no idea what the political climate is in these lands or how people will greet us. They may accept your gold, then slip a knife between your ribs. Katrin didn't have a response for that. She felt it was a chance she had to take. They rode through silent wilderness for much of the day, but then more settled lands came into view. Few people worked the fields, but some stood from their labors and stared as Katrin and Benjen rode by. More stares followed as they entered a small town, and Benjen slowed their mount to a walk. Shop owners hawked wares silently by holding up their finest products and displaying others on outdoor shelves and racks. An elderly woman held up a pair of leather leggings as they passed, and Katrin whispered to Benjen to stop. He reined in and tied the horse off to a nearby post. The shop owner nodded to Katrin, 
and only when they were inside the shop did she speak. Welcome, lady. What have you need of? I need three pairs of leggings, a coat, and shirts, Catherine said while admiring the different designs on display within the shop while Benjamin stood at the door, watching the shop and their horse at the same time. I like this design, Catherine said, looking at a jacket of supple leather with reinforced rawhide patches on the elbows and shoulders, the inside lined with soft cloth. Can you make leggings to match this? That I can. Just let me get you measured, the shopkeeper said as she retrieved a long piece of string. With deft and quick movements, she made small knots in the string after each measurement. I can have those ready in ten or twelve days. I need them sooner, Catherine said. Can you have them done in two days? Impossible. I have work to finish for other customers, and I'd have to work day and night, even if I wasn't already behind. I'm sorry. No. Catherine nodded and fingered her purse. Pulling out two gold coins, she placed them on the counter. I need them in two days. Yes, yes, certainly, my lady, the shopkeeper said, her eyes going wide. I'll have them ready. Is there anything else you need? Where might I find a cobbler? My husband is the best in the land, milady. Let me get him for you, she said, and disappeared into the back of the shop. A moment later, a bearded man appeared, looking half asleep, but his wife urged him from behind. Malus says you need shoes. Boots, Catherine said. I need a pair of sturdy but comfortable boots, and I need them in two days. Can't be done, he said, but Mala cuffed him in the back of the head and whispered in his ear. Two days then, he said, rubbing his head. After he measured her feet in equally efficient fashion, Katrin handed him a gold coin. Two days. I wish you'd been less generous with the gold. Benjamin said as they rode from town. We're conspicuous enough as it is. We don't have time to wait. I did what I had to do. I know, little miss. I just have a bad feeling. Let's ride to the next town and see if we can find a cooperative food merchant, Catherine said, having bad feelings of her own. As the sun set, Benjamin began looking for suitable campsites and eventually they settled beneath a grove of oaks. Compared to the chaos of the army encampments, the song of the tree frogs was like a lullaby, and Katrin slept better than she had in weeks. In the light of Madras' fire, Chase wondered what would happen next. Here he sat in a strange land, far from his home, yet he found himself tied to these people by bonds of brotherhood and friendship, but he felt guilty knowing he would only leave them to their fates. In other circumstances, he would stay with them and help them reclaim their lives, but he knew he could not. It seemed hopeless. The challenges ahead of Katrin seemed just as insurmountable, 
and he quailed in the face of them. Once he had felt strong, even powerful. In his sheltered world back on the Godfist, he had always been certain he would succeed, but now his world seemed impossibly large and equally dangerous, which left him feeling insignificant and powerless. Thinking of his friends and family, he suddenly missed them more than he had ever thought possible. Across the fire, he noticed Madra watching him. Their eyes met, and he could not look away. You're a good boy, she said, and Chase could not hide his surprise. When the gods first sent you to me, I thought you were just another test. But you've proven yourself to me. You're brave, honest, and hardworking. No matter what path you choose, you've as good a chance as any to succeed. Chase was dumbstruck. He'd never expected to hear such words from Madra. She'd always been gruff, yet fair, and harsh without being caustic, and that his efforts had barely made his presence tolerable. Now, looking into her eyes, he saw something entirely different. The rough exterior had been hiding what lay beneath, and through the cracks that she allowed to show, she revealed a bit of herself to him. You remind me of my youngest, Medrin. He's a good boy, too, she said, and her voice cracked. Chase moved closer and squeezed her hand. You'll get them back, he said. In the next moment, his perception of the world changed once again, as one of the strongest people he'd ever met laid her head on his shoulder and cried. The sun brought a cheerful summer day to life, and it seemed to Katrin almost as if everything were right in the world. Honey farms and wheat fields dotted the countryside, and soon a larger town came into view. The streets were congested with merchants and beggars alike, both ready to part the unwary from their coin. Benjen kept to the main thoroughfare and dismounted only when they reached the market proper. Here, guards patrolled and no beggars could be seen. Despite the added measure of safety they brought, Katrin feared the sight of them. Benjen tied their mount to a post in front of a place that sold wagons, not far from a shop that smelled of baking bread. Let me have the gold. I'll do the talking, Benjen said, and Katrin handed him the purse. Good day to you, sir, he said to the wagon merchant. That it is, the man replied as Benjen wandered around the lot, inspecting the available wagons. What can I help you find? I'm not certain I see anything that would suit my needs, Benjen said. Most of the good ones have gone and no new ones are being built, friend. You won't find a better selection in all the Greatland during these trying times. Perhaps this fine, single-horse cart would make your burdens lighter. How much? Four silvers. Two, Benjen countered. Three. Three, and you include the harness. Deal. Katrin was amazed at how quickly the deal was made 
and she saw a look of suspicion cross the merchant's face as Benjen handed him a gold coin, not having anything smaller. The merchant handed Benjen his change in silvers as if each one were an insult. Benjen apologized and slipped the man another silver for his trouble. This brightened the man's expression considerably, but Katrin still sensed distrust. After unsaddling their mount, Benjen put the harness on him and hooked it to the wagon. When he was done putting the saddle in the wagon, he walked to the baker's shop. Inside, all manner of bread, cake, and biscuit were on display, and bakers were busy taking fresh loaves from their massive stone ovens. "'Greetings, friends. What can Amul do for you today?' asked a rotund and flour-covered man from behind the counter. "'I need as many loaves of bread and hard biscuits as you can sell me.' "'Well, I certainly couldn't sell you everything.' since I have my regular customers to think of. And that would take a lot of coin, friend. Have you an army to feed? The baker asked with a hint of his own suspicion. Sometimes it seems that way, friend Amul. But no. How much can you spare? Benjen asked, and the baker visibly appraised Benjen and Katrin. Twenty loaves of bread and twice as many biscuits the baker said after a moment's contemplation. Benjen paid him handsomely, and they loaded their wagon with haste. Their purchases were starting to draw attention, and they rushed to escape the scrutiny. Before they left town, though, Benjen made a hurried bargain with a meat merchant, who sold them ten cured hams, and a blacksmith who sold them a gross of horseshoes and nails. They had spent most of the gold Millie had given Katrin, but she was happy with what they had been able to get. Fearing they would be followed, Katrin spent most of the ride looking over her shoulder, but no one came. Pulling the wagon was slower than riding, and their horse occasionally struggled with the additional weight, but it was overall a pleasant way to travel. When night arrived, they made camp in a grassy clearing, tied the gelding off to a nearby tree, and took turns sleeping under the stars. Watching the night sky, Nat considered his fortune. He'd wasted a lifetime on the Godfist, fighting the preconceived notions of others, always having to prove himself sane. Now, after coming to the Falcon Isles, he found himself transformed from madman to teacher, pariah to mentor, outcast to leader. The Gunata tribe had been wary of him at first, probably due to bad experiences with others of fewer morals than he. They were a primitive tribe that only in recent decades had come into contact with civilized people. Civilized. The word rang falsely in Nat's mind. Civilized. To be civil. Benevolent. The term seemed more fitting to describe the unsophisticated Gunata than anyone from the Godfist or the Greatland. The Gunata did not seem to judge one another or cast aspersions. They lived a simple existence where the tribe mattered more than any individual yet every person was valued. Nat found it truly refreshing, 
Still, he had tried to avoid developing feelings for Nina, but it was a battle he lost. As he had learned bits of her language and she his, they had become closer, speaking a language only they understood. During his trips to the mountains, Nina was always by his side, helping and protecting him. When she told the Gunata of his visions, the elders seemed relieved, as if Nat were filling some crucial role. Nat wasn't certain he understood their reasoning, but they had taken him in, and they treated him as an elder. When Nina offered herself to him as a wife, the elders approved. Despite the warnings in his head, Nat could not resist. With the full moon at its zenith, Nat and Nina stood before the elders. Zagut! Chief Umatiri said, and Nat knew this was his signal to kneel. Nina knelt at his side, her hand in his. Each elder came to them and kissed each of them on the forehead. Chief Umatiri came last. He grasped Nat's head between his thick-fingered hands and looked Nat in the eye. When he kissed Nat's forehead, it felt like a hammer blow, and Nat was thrust into a violent fit as visions overtook him. Visions of Katrin standing before a charging bull with hooves of fire. That concludes this episode of Dragon Ore. Thank you for listening. For news and the latest releases, visit patioracket.com.